I'm the pastor here, and uh, I would love to meet you at some point. And we are in the middle of, actually moving toward the end of, a sermon series that we're calling The Resurrection Effect. And it's looking at Jesus' resurrection and the people he interacts with after he, has re- after he has been raised, and what it does really to them, and what it shows us, how we can even see reflections of, of how we are supposed to understand Jesus' resurrection in the people that he meets. Well, the passage that we're in here, John 20, the end of John 20, verses 30 and 31, is kind of a summary of the book of John. Uh, John goes on for another chapter, so there's more that we're going to be able to talk about, but he gives us a little summary of why he's written this. And this summary is actually a great kind of answer to the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to become a Christian? Now, when I say what does it mean to become a Christian, I know immediately there's a lot of you that have kind of just turned that switch off and said, okay, I'm already a Christian, I don't have to listen to this one. That's not so. Because actually, the Bible never talks about becoming a Christian and remaining a Christian in different terms. The Bible actually talks about the way that we come to Jesus, the way that we come to know Jesus, is the same way that we come to grow in Jesus. So even if you have been sitting in church pews or chairs your whole life, Even if you would say you have been a believer since the time that you can remember, this is still for you. It's still for me. It's still for us to know what does it mean to believe in Jesus and to have life in his name. If you've got a Bible, open it up to John chapter 20, the end of the chapter. Starting at verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for someone like John who would write this gospel for us that we might believe. Father, I pray that you would open our hearts wherever they're coming from today. That you would either instill belief for the first time, renew belief, or just deepen it in you. That we might see what it means to have life in your name. We do pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. My youngest, uh, Anderson, a few years ago, he was pretty young and... We were picking them up from school, and Joy was working at the school at the time, and so there was a little bit of a lag sometimes between when she would get out of her work and when the kids would finish school, and so they'd have a little bit of free time, a little time to to do various things. And we, we couldn't this one time find out where Anderson was, so Joy was kind of looking all around, and she she drove around over close to the baseball fields, and there on the baseball dugout is the word written In spray paint, green baseball dugout, like bright yellow spray paint, A-N-D-E-R, that's as far as it got. And so she pulled up, Anderson, what is going on? Why is your name on the baseball dugout? And after, you know, much weeping and gnashing of teeth, we finally figured out it was these two older boys, about three grades older than him, that had said, yeah, it's just totally, here's some paint. We should paint on the baseball dugout, right? And he didn't really know what he was doing, decided to write his name on the dugout. 
So after we had the discussion about, listen, if you're going to graffiti, write somebody else's name, um, you know, then we got to talk about, like, why do you do what you do? Why would you write that? You don't do what you do just because somebody else has told you to do it. You don't do what you do just because some older boys said it was okay. There are reasons why we do what we do. There are reasons why people write some things down and not other things. You may write in a diary or a journal. You may do it all the time. And the reason may be that later on in life, many days later, you want to be able to go back and look at it and see, oh, this is what happened on that day. This is how I felt. This is what I said. You want to kind of have it as a remembrance. Sometimes you may want to write something down or take a photo or just capture it so that you'll be protected, right? So for insurance, you take pictures of your house when you get your homeowner's insurance so that when they come and they say, oh, no, no, that was already damaged, you can show them the picture that says, no, no, actually it was fine. It's written down. It's documented. You may write things down because you want to gain some sort of power over people. That's the reason some people write things down is, hey, my side has won or has accomplished this thing, so I'm going to write this in order to recruit you to my side so that you'll actually come alongside and think all of the same things that I do and so that we'll win. It's really wonderful, I think, when we close out the book of John that he tells us actually why he wrote it. He says, this is why I've written these things. And he didn't just write it so that he might be able to remember it sometime. He didn't write it in order to kind of protect his side. He didn't write it for selfish purposes. He wrote it for you and me. It's beautiful to finish out the Gospel of John and see, wow, the entire purpose of this book is so that you and I might actually believe. And in believing, might have life in Jesus' name. If you remember last week, that last line that we read from Jesus when he interacts with Thomas. He says, Thomas, you've believed because you've seen me, but blessed are those who haven't seen and still believe. Well, how's that going to happen? John's written it down for us. In fact, he gives us kind of a step-by-step process even of how that happens. How can those who haven't seen, who haven't stood in front of Jesus and felt his side and seen his hands, how can those of us, 2,000 years later, across an ocean and more, how can we come to believe? And this is what John lays out for us today. Step-by-step process for belief, either for the first time or as a continual daily process. Here's the first step he gives us. When we open up in verse 30, John says that Jesus did many more signs. He did many more signs, and I've just written down these. That word sign is is important in the Bible. It's important in the New Testament because it describes not only the things that Jesus said and did, but why he did and said them. John gives us seven miracles that Jesus accomplished over the course of the book of John. Some of the other gospel writers include different ones. John includes seven. Remember his first is that he turns water into wine at the wedding in Cana. He then uh, heals an official son. Uh, he, uh, he heals a lame man who was lame from birth. He miraculously feeds 5,000 people with, you know, a happy meal. And he walks on water. Uh, he raises Lazarus from the dead. He heals a man born blind. Seven things that Jesus has done that exemplify who he is. Jesus also teaches a lot, too. Not only was he doing miracles, he was actually teaching. And we can actually see these teachings as signs, too. Now, in John, again, the majority of his teaching is at the end of the book when he's gathered his disciples in the upper room and he's explaining to them what's going to happen. But we should understand that teaching as well as signs that Jesus gives us. 
And then, of course, the greatest of all signs is his death and his resurrection. So all throughout the book of John, John is recording the things that Jesus has done and said, the things that Jesus has accomplished, that should be signs for us. Now, what's a sign? This is important to remember what a sign is. A sign is something that points not to itself, but points to something else. A road sign is a great example of this. My favorite road sign, I think, probably in the world is as you come in on I-10 from Louisiana into Texas, as soon as you cross the state line, there's this sign that says, like, Beaumont 22, El Paso 860. And it's this great sign. You know, I love it. I take a picture of it every time we come in into, into Texas. Because it means a few things. It means, A, I-10 is really long. But it means more than anything, Texas is really big. And if you're planning to go to El Paso, you might want to pack a lunch and get a nap in between because it's really, really far away. That's not supposed to draw your attention to the sign. The importance is not this big green piece of plywood or metal on the side of the road. The importance is what it signifies, that El Paso is really, really far away. They say, you know, a dumb dog, when you point, will look at your finger. And a smart dog, when you point, will actually look at the thing that you're pointing at. That the smart dog will actually follow your finger to the thing that you're trying to point at. The same is true for husbands, right? (laughs) When your wife calls and says, when will you be home? A dumb husband says, seven. A smart husband says, yes, ma'am. Because he understands that that wasn't a question, right? That meant, get your blank home now and you better have a bottle of wine with you so the smart husband understands and sees the sign and he looks to what it's pointing to that's what the signs are for us as well that jesus does his his miracles his teaching particularly his death and resurrection we are supposed to look at these and see who he is and why we need him so we're supposed to look at jesus feeding the five thousand and then By the way, afterwards, not too far afterwards, saying, I'm the bread of life. We're supposed to look at that and then we're not supposed to say, oh, that's so neat. You know, I bet those people who were really hungry, I bet he made them really happy. We're supposed to go way farther than that. That's looking at the finger, not at what it points to. What we're supposed to do is look and say, this is God himself who has provided for them and who actually can provide for me. This is the one who feeds my deepest hungers. This is the one who is the bread of life that sustains me and fills me. I'm hungry and I need Jesus. Right? When we look at Jesus healing somebody, we're supposed to look and go, Oh, I'm broken and I need healing. Therefore, Jesus is my healer. When we see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead and then proclaim, I'm the resurrection and the life, we're not just supposed to look at Lazarus. We're supposed to look at us and say, you know what? We need resurrecting. Our our spirits are dead and need to be risen, and we need to find that in Jesus. That's what it means to look at the sign and to know the one then who is given the sign. And John says there have been plenty of these. Other gospel writers, uh, they, they account, they have different accounts, or many overlapping. But John says, listen, Jesus did a whole lot. I didn't write it all down, and they, neither did they. Jesus did so much, but these I've written down so that you would believe. So that's the first step for us. If we're saying, what does it look like to believe? What does it look like to become a Christian? The first step is, look at the signs. Look at what Jesus has done. Explore it. Look at what he has done, and then look at yourself and see how you need those same things in your life. 
Alright, second step, John continues and he says, he says, Jesus has, has done many other signs, uh, which are not written down, but these I have written down, and then dot, 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 we'll just pause there for a second, because he's repeated a word. By the way, if you're reading the Bible and you see words repeated a lot, they're usually important. You should pause, you should investigate a little more. So when we see Jesus or John say, these aren't written down, I've written down these, that word written is actually really important to us. John thought it was important enough to write down the things that Jesus did and said. He thought it was important enough to be able to have a testimony that could be investigated. To have evidence that could be investigated. To write it down so that future generations, you and I, might be able to look at it. Now, we just call this the Bible now. The Bible is where we find God's revelation for us. When God is speaking to us, when God is saying, I am now proclaiming this to have happened, where we find it is the Bible. So here's the first just quick implication. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) If we want to know who God is, if we want to know what he's done, if we want to know his character and what he desires, then read the Bible. Get to know his word. That is how he has revealed himself to us. If you also want to know how to be closer to him, the Bible is where that is to be found. Now, oftentimes I have done this myself and talked to people who have done the same thing. There's this kind of running feeling right in the background that's like, I just don't feel very close to the Lord. It doesn't feel as close as I was maybe six months ago or six years ago or in college or whatever it is. I just feel like there's something that's just kind of far and it feels, my spiritual life feels dry, it feels dead. And I usually ask myself the question, how often are you in the Word? And you know what? Usually my answer is, not very often when I feel that way. It's kind of like walking through a desert with a full canteen of water and not ever drinking it. And then going, oh, why am I so thirsty? This is weird. Right? It makes sense. God has actually given us something that we might get to know him. He has revealed himself to us. By the way, this is also one of the things that is utterly unique about Christianity. Christianity presents a God who doesn't say, okay, come and find me. Here are the steps that you have to take in order to find some sort of enlightenment. And then I will finally reveal myself to you. That's not the way it works. God has said, here it is. If you want to get to know me, here I am. I have revealed myself to you plainly. Come and find me. I'm right here. So if we want to know him more deeply, if we want to grow in relationship with him, his word is where we do that. Now, it doesn't change our relationship with him when we stay away from his word, but it changes our relationship with him. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, if I spent six weeks without talking to my wife, it would not change our relationship. We would still be married. Our legal relationship is the same, but it sure would change our relationship if we didn't talk for six weeks. If you don't talk to the Lord, it's also going to change your relationship with him. What he has done for you is secure. He has made you his own by the blood of Christ. That relationship will never change. But if you want to know him and deepen your relationship with him, if you want to get to know him better and draw close to him, his word is where you find that. There's also This is also the reason why we really try to saturate our worship with the word. Maybe you were counting and you saw one, two, three, four scriptures already plus this one plus another one that we'll probably recite here in a little while. 
Scripture is all over our worship because we think that's how we actually come to be formed by the Lord as we come under his word. It is our authority. And then lastly, if we are those who we've said over the last few weeks have been sent out on a mission to proclaim what Jesus has done, he's actually sent us with an amazing tool to be able to just go and open his word with a friend. You know, it's okay to just say, hey, do you want to just read the Bible together? If you have a friend who's investigating Christianity or if you have a friend who's just interested at all, just say, why don't we just meet for coffee and we'll do it every Tuesday and we'll just read through the Gospel of Mark. That would be a great thing to do. And then just let God's word go to work because it's powerful. So there's a second thing for us. The second step is really investigate the evidence, investigate God's word, get to know Jesus through what he has done and how he has been revealed in his word. And of course, for us, those two things go hand in hand because we see Jesus' acts, we see Jesus' signs in his word. So, what's the conclusion of that? Why are we supposed to do that? It's so that, John says, we might believe. That we might believe. And that we might believe, actually, a couple of really important things. He says that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Uh, Christ is actually a word, it's actually a Greek word that is, uh, that is talking about the Hebrew concept of Messiah. So when you see the word Messiah in the Old Testament and the word Christ in the New Testament, they mean the same thing. They mean the long-awaited king that was, that was coming to, to save Israel. To save Israel, God's people, from all of her oppressors. To bring about the, the, the restitution of all things. To be the one who would come and say, it's in me where your life is going to be found. Now you actually see the word Messiah used for King David in the Old Testament. It just means anointed one. God's chosen. God's anointed one that would be his person to lead his people, to protect his people, to guide them, to show, to show them what it's like to actually embody righteousness and justice and mercy, to actually be the representative of God's people that his people would then follow. And David, for the most part, actually did that pretty well, but by no means did he do it perfectly. You can find many, many examples of ways that David fell short. If there's this pattern, though, that's set up in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that says we need somebody like that. We need somebody who's going to lead us, who's going to guide us, who's going to save us. We need somebody who's going to fulfill all of these promises that have already happened. The one in the line of David, and even going back further, the seed of Abraham, the seed of Eve, the woman, the one who would crush the head of the serpent. And if you were a Jew in the first century, you would have been looking for this person. You would have been asking the question, who is the Messiah? Who is the one who is going to save me? Who is the one who is going to make things right for me? Friends, we ask that same question all the time, don't we? Who or what is it that's going to make everything right for me? Is it the new job that's kind of on the horizon? Is that the thing that's going to settle my soul, that's going to make everything okay? Is it a spouse that I don't have right now? Is it a different spouse than the one that I have right now? Is it a new group of friends that are going to make everything okay for me and settle me and just kind of feel like I've been saved now and everything in my life is okay? We are looking for those things all the time. And like we said before, they are usually like salt water. We keep drinking them and drinking them, thinking that they're going to fill us up, but they leave us emptier and emptier and emptier. 
What John is saying is whether you are a first century Jew and you're asking the question, who is the Messiah? Or you are a 21st century Texan and you're asking the question, who is going to save me? You're asking the same question and the answer is the same. It's Jesus. That is what John is saying is the Messiah is this man, Jesus. Look to him to be saved. He says he's the Christ, believe that he's the Christ, but also believe that he is the Son of God. Now, Son of God is a huge term, because it actually means something, sometimes it means something more like the Christ, the Messiah, it's a messianic kind of term, but it includes so much more than that. Because it actually includes the fact that Jesus is God. He's not just a king, he's not just a guy that did some cool stuff, he's not just a guy that should be an example for us to look up at and say, you know what, that's a great hero, a leader that I should try to become more like. That's not the way the Bible presents Jesus. It certainly presents him as that, but so much more. That Jesus is actually God himself, God incarnate, God taken on our flesh. God actually come to earth to put on our flesh so that he might solve our deepest problems. So that he might fix the things that we've broken. That's what it means for Jesus to be the son of God. John opens up his entire gospel by saying that the word was made flesh. The one who who created all things, this Jesus was made flesh so that he might come and save us. To believe into Jesus is actually to believe that he is not only the savior of sinners, the Messiah, the Christ, but to believe that he is God himself, put on flesh to take care of our deepest problems. That's what it means to believe into Jesus. So what happens when we believe in Jesus? And this is where we're going to finish. Well, John says that his purpose in writing is so that we might believe, and in believing we might have life. That we might have life in Jesus' name. Now, life is a, is a big term for John. It's all over the Gospel of John. He uses the word 36 times in his Gospel. And he uses it in a variety of ways. Uh, all throughout the Gospel of John, he's using it sometimes in different ways. When he opens up his Gospel and he says in John 1 that, uh, that the light, that the word was light and that, or excuse me, the word was life and that life was the light of men. He equates life and light together in John 1. Basically saying the life that is found in Christ is actually a life that illuminates, that brings us out of darkness, that shows us the reality of who we are and who Jesus is. So it's it's something that actually enlightens us. He says in John 6 as well, that uh, he, he says that I am the bread of life in John 6. Meaning that that life that comes with Christ, the life that we have been given in Christ, is something that sustains us, that fulfills us. That we need that life. We have a deep hunger and that Jesus actually fills that hunger. So we have light, life as light, life as bread in John 6. Then in John 10, uh, Jesus says, I've come that they might have life and have it abundantly. So we have this combination then of abundant life. That the life that Jesus offers is not a life of scarcity. It's not a life that he offers that makes us kind of work oftentimes out of scarcity. There's not enough in me, so I've got to always go find it somewhere else to fill me. That's not it. If you're a Christian, Jesus has given you his life abundantly. More than you could ever ask for. That it spills over in you. That you are so full with his love and his grace and his mercy shown to you that it should spill over in your life to others. 
That's abundant life. But you know what the qualifier John uses most in the Gospel of John? There's a word that he connects with life 17 out of those 36 times. So nearly half of the time he uses the word life, he qualifies it with the word eternal. Eternal life. Now, I don't know why I'm so dumb sometimes, but a friend of mine this week helped me understand this in a totally different way, and I don't know why I'd seen it. Maybe like some of you, you thought about eternal life as something that just hasn't started yet. Right? Eternal life is something that's in the future. The end is eternal, but the beginning just hasn't really begun yet. That's the way I have really most of my life thought about eternal life. It's not now. It's, it's later on. But that's not really what the word eternal means, is it? Eternal doesn't begin, and it doesn't end. And Jesus actually says this multiple times. He says in John 5, he says that, that I'm giving you eternal life is that what you will have, is that you have eternal life. Not you will have eternal life. Not someday when you die, when other things happen, that you will gain eternal life. He says, believe in me and you have eternal life. You are born again. That means that our life with God actually begins now. The eternal life that we have with the Savior is happening now. Our eternal life is actually enacted now. We are spiritually, eternally living with Jesus. We're just kind of waiting for our bodies to catch up. In fact, one scholar has said that's what the resurrection of Jesus is, is God kind of reaching into the future and bringing it into the present so that we can see it. That's the concept that Paul uses when he talks about first fruits of the resurrection. Is that we are actually seeing this glimpse of the future. What is real of us even now is spiritually, and what will be real of us in the future, physically and temporally, is what we see in Jesus in his resurrection. Okay, that's a big kind of concept. Why does it matter? Well, it matters because if eternal life hasn't started yet, then what we do now doesn't really have much bearing. It doesn't really make much of a difference. We're just kind of waiting for something to start and we're in this in-between time where we're spinning our wheels or we get to do whatever we want or, you know, no one really cares. But if eternal life has already begun, if our lives are bound up eternally with Jesus now, then what we do here and now, temporally, physically, matters. It changes our joy daily. It changes our reason for wanting to follow the Lord. Not so that we might earn something given to us in the future, but so that we might just grow into being who we already are. So that we might grow into being temporally who we already are eternally. It changes the way that we work. We're not spinning our wheels. We are actually making this place more like heaven. That's what Jesus tells us to pray, right? On earth as it is in heaven. That's part of the words that he gives us of the Lord's Prayer. To believe into Jesus and to have life is to have life that actually matters for us now. If this is the first time you've heard some of these things, this is a fabulous chance for you to begin that conversation with the Lord. What does it look like for me to investigate the evidence, to see the signs, to come to believe who Jesus is? If this is your 100 millionth time sitting in church, this is also a great time for you to continue the conversation with the Lord. 
What does it mean for me to deepen my understanding of who Jesus is? What does it mean for me to understand my life is eternally bound up in Him? And how does that have an impact on what I do now? We're going to have a few minutes where we get to really focus in on that and ponder that question. Before we do, let me close this in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this incredible truth that um, you have written down for us. That Jesus has come and he he has done things that we couldn't do. He has shown us, Lord, through these signs how much we need him. Lord, and you have called us to believe, to place our trust in you, to move it from these things that we think are going to fulfill us, that we think are going to give us life, and to move it to you, Lord, where real and true and eternal life is to be found. Will you show us what that means for us this morning? Will you work in our hearts? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.